Well, let me begin by saying thank you on behalf of myself and Mark and our wives uh, for your generous presentation. We, we did not know that was coming, and that was very kind and gracious of you. Um, I just want you to know what Kiri and I tell people often, and that is that uh, we don't understand the stories that people uh, get all the time about uh, how it's hard to serve a body um, because of how like, bad they are to their pastors. Uh, to be honest with you, we feel completely overwhelmed that we get to serve people like you. Um, y'all are gracious and kind and generous, uh, and it's a joy. It's a joy for us to be able to serve brothers and sisters like you. And it's a joy for the way that as we minister to you, you minister to us. And I want to thank you for that. Um, but this morning, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about y'all's generous gift in a minute. Um, uh, we're going to be in Mark, though. So we're going to look in the Gospel of Mark 6, where Troy just read from us. Uh, and uh, we're thinking this morning... Um, really about the idea of compassion. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, I don't know if any of you have had an opportunity to read any books um, on the idea of giving generously, but there's some good ones that have come out in the past few years. Uh, one interesting title is Dead Aid. Uh, it's a book that was written by an African lady by the name of Dembisa Moya. And in that book, what she says is really interesting. She says, over the last uh, many decades... Over a trillion dollars worth of uh, aid has been sent to Africa to help with all kinds of needs. And what's interesting is you would, you would say, oh, a trillion dollars, that's really generous and good. And yet she follows it up saying, and yet Africa is worse, not better for it. Now, that might surprise you um, to have someone who has received the great generosity of others. Now, I think we learned a couple of things from her comments and from the book at large. Uh, one is that um, obviously it's amazing that uh, people have given a trillion dollars to Africa. Now, I'm sure there are mixed motives, but I guarantee you at least behind many of those motives is the idea of compassion. Uh, People have compassionate hearts, and uh, I don't even think necessarily you need to be a Christian to image God in the sense that God is compassionate, and He made us as a compassionate people. Uh, But there's a second thing that we see here, and that is that in this world, Compassion is a difficult project. Uh, it is hard for us to be compassion for a, uh, compassionate for a number of reasons. Uh, for one, it is difficult to be compassionate because we live in a broken world. So that as we give, we often will find that though we're trying to be compassionate, even in our best motives, we, we find sin, right? I mean, so how many of you have given before to be compassionate and all of a sudden found in your heart there was some desire to be recognized? for your amazing display of compassion, right? Uh, or, or what about this? Uh, imagine how difficult it is to be compassion, give, p- compassionate given who you're giving to. So we are trying to display compassion on someone. We are being generous. And yet in our generosity, what we have created is a situation of dependency that actually has immobilized someone from getting out of the position that they need to get out of. So you can see that compassion is a difficult project for us in a fallen world. But praise God that this morning uh, we have been given a better shepherd. A shepherd, Jesus Christ, who came to show us what compassion ought to look like. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning as we enter back into our series on the Gospel of Mark. So here, uh, we are going to see a picture of Jesus Christ who has come to display the character of our compassionate God before us. We're in the amazing true story of Jesus, as we have been. And this morning, what we're going to be looking at is two stories. Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. Two pretty popular stories in um, the list of stories in, in Jesus. Now, what's interesting is, this story about the 5,000 being fed is actually the only miracle that we find in all four of the Gospel accounts. And what's also interesting is how alike each of these are. In fact, the numbers that are used throughout these stories are consistent. Uh, You'll notice that in each of these, there are five loaves, there are two fish, there are 5,000 men, 12 baskets, and 200 denarii. So this is a very consistent story throughout the gospel tradition. And what this means to us, I believe at least, is that the church saw this story is very important for future Christians who would come to know Jesus. Well, this morning what we are going to find is, 
is that the compassionate shepherd came down to feed his sheep, not to eat them. Very important. We have a compassionate shepherd who came down to feed the sheep, not eat them. That's what we're going to be talking about today. I know it sounds tantalizing. So here we go. Beginning in first, uh, first point, which is this. Jesus was tired and hungry. Jesus was tired and hungry. He's a shepherd and he's tired and hungry as we begin this morning. So let's just take a quick pit stop here in our first verses, verses 30 to 32, to recognize the status of Jesus and his disciples. They are exhausted. See, ministry has kept them at such a fast pace that they haven't even had time to eat. Verse 31 tells us, and Jesus said to them, these disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Now, for many were coming and going, it says, and they had no leisure even to eat. See, Jesus wanted to protect his disciples from becoming physically and spiritually hangry. You, you know about hangry, right? We've talked about this before. It, it's where you get hungry to the point that you get angry at others, right? I mean, it's almost to the point you're so hungry, like you're worried that somebody's like growling and, and you're like, man, I don't even know if he's going to like chew my arm off or something. He's so hungry. But you can tell that if you are hungry and fatigued, usually you don't have the inner resources to minister to others. It puts us in a difficult place. And so Jesus, aware of this, tells his disciples, sail away with me. And they retreated to a desolate place. But notice the interruption that comes in verses 33 to 34. Uh, There we see second, that compassion compels the good shepherd to feed his sheep. Compassion compels this good shepherd to feed his sheep. So how is a, a hungry and tired Jesus going to minister to the needy crowds? How is he going to respond to them? Well, we find out in verses 33 to 34. We see here that compassion actually drives Jesus to feed the sheep God's words. Look what it says in verses 33 to 34 again with me. Here's what it says. It says there, Now many saw them, and they saw them going and recognized them, being Jesus and the disciples. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when we went ashore, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now hear this, catch this. A a, a marathon actually breaks out on the shoreline, right? So uh, what we find is, is that people recognize Jesus out on the boat with the disciples and they see that it's him. And they decide, well, we're going to kind of jog along the shore. We're going to catch up with them. And so they start jogging from village to village and pick up 5,000 men. 5,000 men running in stride, and they beat Jesus to his destination. In fact, Jesus (laughs) just wanted to get away, right? Just wanted a break. And he is greeted here by 5,000 men saying, what took you so long? We've been waiting for you. Doesn't that sound like a peachy situation? I bet Jesus was excited to see them at the shore, right? But check this out. Check out how Jesus responds. I think probably unlike how I would respond. He says, it says there that he had compassion on them in verse 34. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Isn't this amazing? 5,000 sheep who were lost just found their shepherd. What a picture. And take note, Jesus had compassion on them. Of course, compassion, I I believe it's an interesting word. Uh, It's a word that uh, oftentimes uh, spoke of a kind of emotion that would erupt from the bowels. Now, why is that? Well, it's because you've probably had emotional experiences before where you kind of felt it in your stomach, where you had uh, either sort of uh, butterflies about uh, a certain someone, like a special feeling, or uh, nerves about a certain event that was coming up that you were scared to death about. And here what we find is, is compassion is an emotion that erupts from the bowels. A word that you really, as you think about it and look it up, it it means to have pity over another's misfortunes. Now, if you're like me and you watched a a lot of television as a kid, you you might have watched too many episodes of the A-Team like me and this verse might be hard for you. 
Uh, because as you read this, you might be thinking to yourself, pity, oh, pity's a bad word. I remember um, whenever I used to watch the A-team, Mr. T, right? Who apparently recently got baptized, by the way. But Mr. T, uh, he is uh, on this show, and he's on the A-team, and he's kind of the enforcer. And you'll remember that you knew it was bad whenever Mr. T said, I pity the fool, right? Like, what did it mean when Mr. T said, I pity the fool? It meant that he was about to put a hurt on somebody, Right? Like, it's going to be bad for you. That's why I pity you. I know what's coming, and it's not going to be good. But here, this is not the picture that we get from our sovereign God, is He has compassion on others and pities them. Now, whenever Jesus has compassion, He is actually moved towards blessing them and doing good to them. See, Jesus' pity, it actually drives Him to seek the good of sinful sheep who have strayed from God. Now, this is, I think, a big deal. I mean, just considering how long Israel has been stuck with bad shepherds, this is an amazing deal. I mean, just think about it. It was about 600 years prior to this text when the prophet Ezekiel, he prophesied in Ezekiel 34, and he talked about the fact that the problem with Israel was that they had all bad shepherds or leaders. And it's amazing the things that he says qualified or describe these bad shepherds. In Ezekiel 34.10, he, God says there, uh, right after saying that these shepherds have been beating and eating God's sheep instead of protecting and feeding them, he says in verse 10 this, I, God, will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And here's what's amazing in verse 11. God says, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. And then in verse 23, he he gives a bigger vision in the future where Ezekiel goes on to say, "And, and I being God will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. In other words, God Himself is going to come down And he would actually seek his scattered sheep out himself, giving them a David-like shepherd who would protect, feed, and heal the wounds of God's sheep. This would be a shepherd unlike any of the shepherds of Israel. See, bad shepherds, they use sheep for what they can get out. Uh, We probably have known bad shepherds. Uh, Bad shepherds who use sheep and leadership so that they can get all kinds of things for themselves. Not for what they can put in, how they can bless others, but what they can get for themselves. Uh, Maybe it's money. Uh, They want to use sheep to get money. How appropriate that y'all gave me a gift on a Sunday morning that I'm preaching on bad shepherds getting money, right? Uh, Bad shepherds are shepherds who are looking for fame or to make a name for themselves above the good of the sheep and the glory of God. They are those who might sexually exploit those who are under their care. That's what bad shepherds do. And here we find that for hundreds, hundreds of years, Israel has been under bad shepherds. And here, take note, Jesus is different. He is moved by compassion in this text in the same way that Yahweh in the Old Testament is moved by compassion for His covenant people whom He loves. See, Jesus' pity moved Him to bless undeserving sinners. See, there's nothing more beautiful, I believe. Because I have studied God's Word and I have spent my life looking at my heart, knowing myself more and knowing God more, I have come to recognize and I still come to recognize more and more day by day there is nothing more beautiful, more stunning, more astounding, more captivating, more glorious than this one reality that our good and glorious God and His Son Jesus would have compassion on a sinner like me. Now you might wonder, you might ask yourself, are you sure that these sheep are bad sheep? That they're sinners? I believe so. I believe the compassion of Jesus towards scattered sheep says more about Jesus' nature than our value. And I think that's important for us to know. This morning as we are reveling in a compassionate Savior, we need to recognize that what we are seeing Jesus do, it says much more about His nature than our value. And see, what we find here is 
is that we see an image that is taken, that is taken from the Old Testament. You'll remember Isaiah 53.6. There we are told why the sheep have strayed away, why they are scattered. It's because we have all, like sheep, strayed away. Each of us has turned to his own way, right? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Straying is sinning. And we have a picture of sinners who need the good shepherd to come and bring them back to God. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. See, Jesus' compassion, it compelled him to sacrifice himself, his own life, for sinners. And I believe he does this for a few reasons. See, what I want to do for the next few moments is press into the compassion that Jesus has for sinners. And I want to ask the question, what is it that drives Jesus to show compassion to some? What is it that drives that? I think there are at least three things as I look at this text in God's Word that drive this compassion. There are more, but there are at least three. And I believe that this is important because we have been made to image God. We have been made to look like Jesus, the most human human that's ever lived. And so, as we look at these three aspects of the pity that Jesus demonstrated, we should ask that our hearts would be moved in those same kinds of ways. So one way, I believe, one aspect of Jesus' pity towards sinners is this. Jesus valued the sheep. Jesus valued the sheep. So I, I, I do believe... That Jesus' compassion says something more about His nature than our value, but it doesn't mean that He doesn't value us. So what we find, I believe, here is, is that Jesus had a certain affection, an emotional response to these scattered sheep. There was something in Him that moved and compelled Him to want to help them. See, I believe this is true for all of humanity. God created every human with a certain amount of dignity as image bearers of God. And and even more, uh, for God's covenant people who are in Christ. Uh, We have a certain dignity and value. And and I believe that that what we find here is that Jesus valued these sheep. Now, here's the question. Why is it that Jesus loves us? Why is it? What is it in us that He values? Well, did you know that Ephesians gives us a little bit of a window into that? Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. He tells us, he gives us a little window into why we have been loved by God and by Christ. Here's what it says. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, kind of hard to love something dead, isn't it? Anybody here just like, have something dead you bring in your house and just pet at nights? No, you don't do that. Why? You want to get things dead away from you. And yet here what we find is, is that even while we were dead in our trespasses, the great love with which He loved us was directed towards us. And He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So why did did God love us? Why does Paul say He loved us? With that great love with which He loved us, that unique, unparalleled love? He says it's because of the grace of God. Wait a minute. Grace of God? Well, what about me? What was it in me that drove him? This text won't let you by with that. He says, no, it's not because of you. It's because of God. God is a gracious God. There is none like Him. His love for you came from Him. And it came because of Him. There's a second thing. Not only did Jesus value the sheep, too, Jesus understood the clear and present danger of the sheep. He understood the clear and present danger of the sheep. He really believed that these sheep were in danger of the wrath of God for sinning against Him. And see, we, 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 like He, He needed, Jesus knew, to gather the scattered sheep to Himself and save them from danger. John 3.36 speaks of that danger. It says, right after John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have, have everlasting life. Then we get to verse 36, and this is what it says. Catch this. Because whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, it remains on Him. See, we need to see that there is a certain wrath 
that rests and remains on those who have not put their faith in Christ. The sheep are not safe. And, and if we do not understand that the sheep are not safe, we will not be moved with pity for them to help them. We will not move at all. We will stand still until we understand the situation, that there is danger. Jesus understood there was danger. There's a third thing that compelled him and moved him with compassion, and that's this, that Jesus knew change was possible. In other words, Jesus knew that if he moved, things would change. He believed it. In fact, Jesus knew that God was big enough to save any sheep to the glory of his name and for their eternal good. Hebrews 3.5 speaks of, of this, this kind of hope and confidence. Here it says, consequently, he, being God, is able to save us sinners to the uttermost. To the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him being Christ, since He always lives to make intercession for them. God is able. He can save them to the uttermost. And when we put our confidence in that, we will run to help those who are in need. We will trust, Romans 12 too, that we are not to be conformed by this world, but that we actually can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Why? Because God... See, he believed that. So Jesus, he valued the sheep. He understood their danger and he knew that change was possible. Praise God that we have a compassionate shepherd whose compassion compelled him to come after sinners like you and me. Isn't that good news? See, God, God is the compassionate shepherd whose compassion sent him running after us as the new and better Moses who came and has come to lead us out of slavery to sin and death into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth where we get to live with God forever. But notice here something very important. Jesus' compassion was not just a feeling. No, it was a feeling that motivated Him to action. Verse 34 says that Jesus' compassion actually drove Him to teach the lost sheep many things, feeding them spiritually. Now, what did He teach as He was compelled to have compassion on them? Well, He taught them the Bible. He taught them the Word of God. And that's exactly the thing that he taught them. Now, maybe you're wondering, what did he teach them? I I don't know. Uh, Maybe something from like Psalm 23. That's a pretty good shepherd psalm, right? Uh, Maybe he was coming to them from the Exodus and Moses. Uh, Maybe he was preaching from Zephaniah 3. Maybe Isaiah 53. All kinds of texts about shepherds. We don't know. But don't miss this. He taught them God's Word. And here's why. Come in close. You might not realize this. Maybe you're new to this Christianity thing. Maybe you're still feeling it out. Here's something that you need to know that the Bible says is true about you and every other human. The human soul needs to hear the Word of God for spiritual nourishment. Your your soul was made for relationship with the God who made you. And you were made to hear from Him. And if you have not been listening to God, uh, trust me, uh, I know from experience and I know from the truth of God's Word that you will languish. Your life, your hope, all of that will turn inward and your life will become a dark place if you turn away from hearing the life-giving Word of God. The Word of God is light and it is hope. It is meaning. You need God's Word. See, Jesus knew that what starving sheep really needed as they were scattered and as they were running from God was to hear God's voice. He really believed if they hear from God, then they'll want nothing more than God. That's exactly the thing that He chases them with. See, compassionate Bleeding hearts will drive us into God's Word. If we really have compassion, what we know is people need God's Word. It will drive us into the Word of God. Our our Bibles. Because we know that what people need is here. If we really are compassionate and love them and understand their needs. Not only that, not only will a bleeding, compassionate heart drive us into God's Word, God's Word, as we dive into it, will cause our hearts to bleed more for others. Do you see it? It's a, it's a bleeding heart that drives us there, and it's a, a bleeding heart that drives us out to love others. See, without God's Word, we starve and die spiritually, but compassionate, bleeding hearts will drive us towards God. God's Word will cause our hearts to bleed more for others. If, if compassion drives us to seek the good of others, without an ultimate aim to drive them towards Christ and His Word, please hear me, that's not the aim of our compassion. To drive them towards Christ, then it's not of the Holy Spirit. But also, if, if we use the Scriptures, and, and they don't drive us to be more compassionate, and to seek the good of others, 
then we need to pray more for the Holy Spirit's help when we study God's Word. Because God's Word ought to make our hearts soft towards a lost and dying world and towards those who are in need and towards our brothers and sisters in Christ that have been wounded by life. Our hearts ought to be softened by the Word of God. Great theology ought to lead to great acts of compassion aiming at making Jesus known. That's what the Bible ought to do. But notice this as well. Compassion also compelled Jesus to feed sheep physically. Not just spiritually with the Word of God, but notice physically He feeds them as well in verses 35 to 44. Look there again with me. Let's read those verses and see what happens. Here it says, beginning in verse 35, And when it grew late, His disciples came to Him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them uh, that to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So did you catch what Jesus did? Uh, I think this is really fascinating as you read this text. Uh, You'll notice that he sets the sheet down on green pastures and beside still waters. Sound familiar? Uh, If it doesn't, just go and try this afternoon to read from Zephaniah 3 or Psalm 23 or Exodus. Why? Well, notice, Jesus tells the disciples to feed them and they ask sarcastically, "Uh, so what, are we supposed to go and buy like 200 denarii worth of bread and come back and feed them? I mean, Jesus, 200 denarii is like half a year's wages. Uh, That's a lot of scratch. You you want us to waste that on these people that we hardly know. And they're in a desolate place with nothing more than five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 grown men. And the disciples, they don't know what to do. Now maybe this sounds familiar to you because you're thinking, uh, oh wait a minute, Moses, he did something similar in the wilderness, right? Like he had the people of Israel, they grumbled because their stomach grumbled. And they said, we're angry. God, why'd you bring us here? Now we're hungry and we're going to starve to death. How did God respond? Well, he sent them manna from heaven. In fact, he sent them manna every day. And he sent them so much that he said, don't save it. There's more coming tomorrow. It's going to get stale and gross. Like, just trust me. I'm going to feed you. Here we find a very similar situation. Jesus is better. Because notice... He not only gives manna, but he also gives fish, right? It's a better meal. And here what we find is, is that he gives so much that 12 baskets remain. Now this is interesting. 12, 12 baskets, 12 disciples. You know why there are 12 baskets and 12 disciples? I think because each disciple had a basket. I know, that's deep. And each one held his basket full of fish and loaves that were left over. See, this highlights two realities that are true for Christians today in this story. I think two things that we want to take away from this text. Uh, One is this. Jesus still provides abundantly for His people. Uh, If you have needs, uh, and, and you need something, you need God's provision, His help, what you need to know is that Jesus never comes up short. Like, He never doesn't help you because He's like, man, I'm sorry, I'm running low on fish today. He never comes up to you and and says, I know you need money for a bill, but you know what? I'm just out of bread. Like, that's not the way that Jesus responds to us. That's not what motivates Jesus. Jesus is always able to help his people. A second thing I think that we see here that's really important to take note of is this. This feast points to a better feast that is to come. See, this is pointing to the future, a future day when there will be a great banquet with the great shepherd. In fact, R.T. France, a commentator, says this. He says, in this gathering, and the way it's pictured, there was an air of festivity about it, which made it, at least with hindsight, a foreshadowing of the messianic banquet, which will come when Jesus returns. 
See, Jesus is coming back to restore all things. And when he does, this is just a small picture of what it's going to be like to dine with God. Nobody goes hungry. Everybody has plenty. Jesus sets us down in green pastures beside still waters forever. This is the promise that we find in this text. Now, I want to press into one of these just for a minute. Did you know that Jesus is actually still able to provide for his people? Maybe you've doubted that this morning. You don't believe that that God actually can help you or provide for your needs. I mean, he did that in the Bible when he was doing amazing stuff, but he doesn't do amazing stuff anymore. Well, let me um, just say that we will suffer. Catch this. We will suffer until Jesus returns. Uh, Each of us will go through difficult times. We are taking up the sufferings of Christ, but don't miss this either. Jesus is still able to provide abundantly. He is still able. Don't doubt Jesus' ability to come and to meet us and to help us. We don't know God is all wise, why he does or what he doesn't do, what he does. But maybe this morning your problem is, maybe you haven't known God's abundant provision, either because you haven't taken, uh, either because you haven't taken God's incredible provision for you into account and you haven't kept track of it. Like, right? I mean, how many of us would be really honest that we had God provide for a miracle and we didn't stop to praise God for bringing provisions that we prayed for. Anybody willing to, to like confess to that today? Like you pray. Maybe you prayed for years for something and God answered and you're like, yeah, and you run off and you're like, what? And God's like, what about, like I just did that. You're like, yeah, but it's done, right? Next thing. Rather than actually acknowledging what God's done. And I wonder how many of those things as answers to prayer God has brought about in your life that you have not taken note of, that you have not kept track of, so that that God, that provision that God has made time after time in your life, you don't remember it and you don't recall it. You don't have those Ebenezer stones that remind you of God's deliverance and His power. Friends, you need those. You need those Ebenezer stones or that journal that you are keeping track of what you are praying for and how God is answering those prayers. Be amazed by God's provision as you do that. Maybe this morning... Uh, you're thinking to yourself, it's not that I'm not giving, keeping track that's the problem. It's that I'm not asking in the first place. You know, my problem is what James calls out in his book. That is that I have not because I ask not. And so maybe today you just need to get to work in actually asking great things of God, trusting that when we ask, God really can do more than what we can imagine or even think. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians. Well, let me share just a, a really quick personal testimony with you. Um, the story kind of uh, actually grew even this morning already. Um, and I want to give you a little, a few details about the story about carrying my life um, because I think it might be helpful. I'm hoping that it's helpful for you and your soul. I usually wouldn't share this many details, but, um, you know, Carrie and I, this past uh, month, we all of a sudden had like all of these bills kind of roll in at the same time and all of these medical bills. And um, it ended up being like thousands of dollars. It just kind of shocked us, right? And so what do I do? Well, uh, at first I like freak out. Um, I was in a corner sort of like, you know, doing this number. No, I didn't do that. Um, but uh, I was, I was uh, you know, I was like, man, that's, that's a lot of bills that come all at once. And so I prayed and, and I asked God for help. And uh, I'm not even kidding you. Like same day we got like a check from Kiri's work that like had not come in. And it like took care of a lot of those bills. Um, then, uh, you know, so that happens. So then uh, this is the next day, right? Uh, the very next day, I get a call. Uh, now, many of you probably know that I went and spoke at this like fundraiser for Phoenix Seminary, and my wife tends to make friends everywhere she goes, and so she made friends with this lady there. All the ladies loved her. She like made friends with the family that called John MacArthur to their church, and uh, ladies that are like good friends with uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's like one of her heroes. In fact, she sent her like a Bible that was signed and a note and all this kind of stuff, and that was amazing. But um, at that same meeting. There was this lady uh, that Carrie connected with, and I get this phone call uh, this week on Tuesday, and um, it's a pastor. I think the pastor called to just let me know that the lady wasn't crazy. And he said, I just want to confirm this deal. Look, um, this lady met your wife and loved her, fell in love with her very quickly, and she feels called by God to actually send her to MD Anderson in Houston. Uh, here's the deal. It's like the best like, cancer hospital in the country. Uh, here's the deal. Um, she has friends who've given millions of dollars to this place, and she has sort of a word in getting people in. And not only that, she wants to cover all of your expenses. 
And, and not only that, like when you go to this hospital, uh, we also would like, she would also like to pray, pray for like your, your hotel lodging and, you know, it can be expensive like to eat and that kind of stuff. We just want to cover that. And he said, so are you interested in that kind of thing? <laughs> and he said, Josh, Josh. <laughs> I was like, uh, I'm sorry. I'm like so stunned right now. I have no idea what to say. Um, and so I came ready like, just to share this story. And I don't know how that's going to unfold, but just knowing that God's provision in that, completely shocking and stunning. So I called and asked Josh, and then I, I mean, Carrie, and then I called uh, him back like 60 seconds later. And I said, oh, this is a quick turnaround, but yeah, we're good to go. Um, and, uh, and then um, the, the other thing is, is like, then we show up this morning and our church like, gives us money. And all of this, uh, because of the goodness of God's people, but I think in response to prayer, I really believe that. See, God provides for his people. Maybe you just need to ask, and God's not always going to do this. Trust me, I've got prayers I've been praying for 10 years, and I've not gotten the check yet. But boy, I mean, this blows away anything I could have ever expected or hoped for or imagined when I prayed to God. Maybe that's what you need to be doing this morning, praying to God, asking him for his help, trusting him, trusting him when it doesn't look like it's going your way. You know, as stunning as this is, this is all just a small foretaste of what awaits us when Jesus returns. And though we will, we will suffer, Jesus still feeds His sheep. Jesus still shows up in emergencies for His children. So let me just challenge you to do a couple of things. One, cry out to God trusting that He really can do more than you think or imagine. And two, take note of the things that you are praying for so that you can give God glory and you can testify to others of God's faithfulness. And by the way, did you know that Jesus also walked on water in this story? Yeah, it's pretty intense. So third, Jesus walked on water and startled disciples. Look at that in verses 45 to 51. Now pay play close attention as I read these verses because I think that you're going to see something here or maybe you'll even miss it, but, but hopefully you're going to see today something that you've missed in this text of Jesus walking on water before, something that connects it to the whole. Here, here's what it says beginning in verse 45. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto a mountain to pray. Jesus is praying. And, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now check this out. Why is it that Jesus here, you've got to ask yourself, connects the loaves of bread, right? with their utterly astounded response to him walking on the water. What's the bread got to do with the water? That's what I'm asking. See, in the Near East, I believe uh, we need a little background to help us understand this. And in the Near East, uh, water often represented chaos. It would represent evil, separation from God, and all that sort of thing. And, and so we, we find, as you read through the, the Old Testament is that God is actually the personal creator who brings order out of the chaos of the sea. We see that in Genesis 1. Uh, you'll also notice throughout the Bible that there's a lot of talk about God in response to the sea. So, for instance, in Job 9.8, there's this really great picture of God who it says stretches out the heavens and it says that He tramples upon the sea, Right? Like, you can see that image. Like, who tramples on the sea? Like, you would sink. You don't, like, that's diving. That's not trampling. But he tramples on the sea. And then we also find another image of God with water, of course, if you think about Moses, right? So Moses comes up to a water, a body of water, the Red Sea or Reed Sea. And as he comes up to it, he's leading people out of slavery into the promised land where there's safety. And the only thing between them is this great body of water. And Moses, like a shepherd, raises his staff and the waters separate. And the people, they walk through on dry land and are rescued. And then the waters 
envelop Egypt, right? Isn't that interesting? Like Moses passing through on dry land there in the sea, separating the waters. I mean, what authority his God must have had to actually be able to separate the seas. And and you know that Jesus uh, is very similar to, to, to Moses. We just saw this in the fact that he created manna and fish in his wilderness. And so you think here, you would think that as the disciples are witnessing Jesus and all that he's doing, that they would recognize him as the God-man, the Christ at this point. Well, fast forward, it's around 3 or 6 a.m. They're exhausted, and Jesus finishes his prayers, and then looks out on the water where they've already started to make the trip, and he notices that they are struggling against strong headwinds in this boat. And verse 48 says this, He came to them walking on the sea. Catch this. Moses separated the sea and he walked through on dry land. But here comes Jesus trampling on the water, right? He's like, I'm better than Moses. Like, you need to see I'm something new. I'm different, right? Who tramples on the sea? Who walks on the sea? Who does that? Well, the Bible tells us God does. God does that. I love that. And Jesus, it says here that he was just going to pass them by. Like just taking a stroll past the boat as they're facing the headwinds. Like, hey guys, I'll see you on the other side when y'all get through with this thing you're doing. And then Jesus was going to walk past them during the storm like it was no big deal. But in verses 49 to 50, the disciples see him and they thought he was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. So Jesus had to stop. And he tells them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Modern tra- translation for that is chill out. Like, you're good. Like, I'm Jesus. You remember we've done this before. I was in the back of the boat. You called me. You've forgotten this. But then Jesus boards the boat and the wind ceases and they were utterly astounded. Quick question. Why were they utterly astounded? Well, Mark tells us in verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Loaves? What loaves? Well, the loaves of bread that Jesus just fed the 5,000. Now, now maybe you're wondering, what do those loaves have to do with Jesus walking on the water in hard hearts? See, up to this point, the disciples have been pictured as insiders who who seem to kind of get it while everybody on the outside, including Jesus' own family, don't get it. The disciples' hard hearts are the hardest of them all at this point. See, they've had the best seats to Jesus' miracles and they still don't understand that He is the shepherd the shepherd-like king God promised to send to save his people. They still don't get it. And they've been right on the front row the whole time. Let me just say this morning, if you're a Christian, you don't just need a soft heart. Uh, That's not just all you need. See, the Bible doesn't say that all you need to do is like sort of beat up that hard heart that's in you and you'll be changed. The Bible says that we need something more than that. The New Testament, the Old Testament testify that what we actually need is not just a softer heart, but a new heart. A heart that only God can give to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. You need to trust Jesus with everything and for everything because he is your everything. You need to understand that Jesus is the one who died on the cross for your sins on your place. He he died for you on the cross so that he would beat back the wrath of God and absorb it so that you might no longer be an enemy of God, but a friend of God. So that you might experience the full compassion of the good shepherd in Christ who laid down his life for you. He did not come to beat sheep or eat sheep. He came to save them. He laid down his life for you. And he did that so that he can make you new. So that he can give you hope and a future. That's the gospel and the good news that the compassionate shepherd brought down for you on the water and with these loaves. He wants you to know that he gives you something better than physical bread. He has given you himself the bread of life. And the only one that brings you hope and this life and the life to come is that bread. If you take and eat of that bread, Jesus Christ Himself, by faith, putting your faith in His death for you, you will be saved and become a child of God. And brother, sister, friend who does not know Christ, there is nothing sweeter than that great exchange that Jesus has come to make for you on your behalf as your good shepherd. No other shepherd could do it. So let me encourage you this morning to turn your faith towards Christ. I love what Jonathan Edwards says in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He says there, God stands ready to pity you this morning. Pity you not, not because 
uh, he is looking at you in some kind of horrific way in the sense of, oh, you are a worse sinner than the rest of sinners. No, he looks at you in the same way that he looks on all sinners apart from Christ as those who are facing his wrath and judgment. And he is ready to forgive you. He's ready to forgive you this morning. Don't walk away. Don't leave here this morning without putting your faith in Christ. So catch this. Maybe you simply need to gaze on your compassionate God this morning. Maybe you came for something else. Maybe this morning you are here because you're looking for help with some kind of addiction. You have some kind of debt. You have a marriage that needs to be reconciled. And God can help with all of those things. But you know what you need most and more than anything here this morning? It is to gaze on your compassionate God and know His compassion in Christ. There is no greater need. Everything else is lower than that. What we really need is the compassionate God who is on display in the gospel. I love what John Owen said about God. He said this, John Owen, great theologian. He said, would a soul continually, I, look at, gaze on, his everlasting tenderness and compassion. If we would ever do that, then it could not bear an hour's absence from him. Whereas now perhaps it cannot watch him one hour. How we fall asleep, if we just could gaze and really understand the compassion of God, it would change us, it would shape us, and we'd never want to look away from our compassionate God. So don't leave here this morning without talking to us. If, if you've got these other problems, we'd love to talk to you about them, but l- l- let, let me just let you know what we're going to say. You, you need to know the Good Shepherd, and, and then He can shepherd you through all of the troubled waters of this life. And Christian brothers and sisters this morning, let me just ask you, are we compassionate You know, I think that we are a compassionate body. I I am again and again startled by brothers and sisters in this congregation that challenge me with their heart that bleeds for others. And I think to myself, I want my heart to bleed more for others like theirs does. I love that I serve in a body like that where I am constantly convicted by your love and and, and I grow in love because of your love. But do our hearts bleed for the broken around us like Jesus' heart bleeds for us? Do they? I think all of us would say this morning, we need more compassionate hearts. And I am grateful for the unique blend of strong theology and warmth that we have here at Trinity Bible Church. But but each of us needs to put on more compassion as Paul commends to the Colossian church in Colossians 3.12. He says there, chosen ones, holy and beloved ones, put on compassion. First thing he says to dress yourselves with, amongst other things, Compassion. I want you to be a compassionate people. I love in the death of the center, uh, in the death of the city by Francis Schaeffer. He talks about how there's a danger constantly that we have good theology and no compassion. And here's what he says: Woe to us, and woe to our evangelicalism with our lack of compassion. There is a decline in missionary interest across evangelical circles. What is lost? One or two things or both. Either a real sense of the lostness of the loss. Right? We don't understand their danger. Or second, compassion in our hearts. That we lack that love and affection for them. If we are Christians and do not have upon us the calling to respond to the lostness of the loss and a compassion for those who are our kind, and by our kind he means human, do not have upon us the calling to respond to the loss of loss and compassion for those of our kind for this life and eternity. Here's what he says. If that's not you and you're not compassionate, your orthodoxy is ugly. I don't want an, orth- uh, an ugly orthodoxy. I don't know about you. But he says orthodoxy, good doctrine without compassion, is not only ugly to others, it's ugly to God. So how do we ignite passion to put on compassionate hearts? Well, let me end with Five quick things that you can think about today as you leave. Five quick things to think about how to put on compassion. Because it seems that Paul thinks that we can put it on. One, you need the Holy Spirit. The kind of compassion that is being spoken of here is not a worldly kind of compassion. It's a compassion that is ignited from within by the Holy Spirit itself. And He, the Holy Spirit, drives us to love and care and want to intervene for the good of others. It's part of the new covenant when we put our faith in Christ that we actually want to be a conduit of blessing to those around us. So if you're not a Christian, then my my first thing to you, if you want to be a more compassionate person, is put your faith in Jesus and that'll change everything. We are compassionate because it we are not compassionate because it just makes us feel 
better about ourselves or because it makes us look better as Christians. Maybe there's that in us. But ultimately, biblical compassion is about Jesus and what He has done for us. Second, we need to grow in our trust that Jesus is the Christ. If we want to be compassionate, we need to know that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. And we need to know what Jesus, His heart is like in that He runs after the lost and He seeks to bind up those who are broken. We need to have a heart like Jesus. We need to trust that He is the Christ, that He actually has authority to and can heal and help those who are in this world, that we really do have something unique in the gospel. We need to believe that. Third, we need to spend time serving people that have nothing to offer us on the face of it. You need to spend time serving people that have nothing to offer you on the face of it. Now, the reason I say on the face of it is because I think that what you're going to find is, is that as you begin to serve those who are in need, you're going to find that you needed it as much as they did. You're going to find that your compassion and your heart, not just for them, but for others, is going to grow because you're going to gain understanding of the human heart as you look to help somebody who is bleeding in a difficult place. You know, you'll find that all of a sudden, sins that you used to make fun of and laugh at now break your heart for others and you weep for them. It will change your heart when you step into the difficult circumstances of people's lives. When you try to help them with their broken marriage, when you try to help them with their addiction, all of a sudden you're going to find that you don't talk about those things in the same way anymore and you don't catch this feel about those things the same way anymore. In fact, those people that you are helping are no longer just problems. They're actually individuals that you love and that you want to help and you want nothing more than to see good for. Not because of what you get out of it, but because what is given to you in Christ You want them to see the great riches that have been lavished on you. The same Jesus who was able to turn five fish into food for 5,000 is the same God who is available to you and sends you out to expose them to that Christ who can help them, who never comes up short to help them in their need. We need to, to show them that. We need to spend time serving people that have nothing to offer us on the face of it. We need to be about the business of killing sins of commission. In other words, those sins that we intentionally commit knowing that God's Word says that we ought not. That sears our consciences. And and hear me, if we are sinning where we know that the Word of God is clear, it, it is changing our hearts and making them hard. Seared consciences create hard hearts towards God and others. And so if we are sinning, we are worse, not better for it. But also, we need to kill those sins of omission. Maybe this morning, that's those sins of not doing something you know you ought to do. And so maybe this morning, uh, you have someone that you know that you need to be ministering to that you're not. God's Word is clear in your relationship that you should be speaking into their lives and the place that God has put you in, in their lives. And you have not been doing it. And that will harden your heart too and make you judgmental if you don't step in to help them and you just step back and judge. Like we are called to be a people who take grace to those who are in need. And six. Take a nap, eat a snack. Take a nap and eat a snack. I mean, didn't Jesus tell the disciples to do that? Like, go get a break. Spend some time alone with God. You know, maybe this morning you struggle with compassion because you are just exhausted and you're not rested well. You know, our physical bodies need rest so that we can love others well. It's not just a problem for you. It's a problem for others when we aren't caring for ourselves. So let's make sure we're doing those things. Let's ask that God would make us a compassionate people to the glory of God. Let's pray.